California Dreaming is a true crime podcast launched in 2017 that delves into the dark side of the Golden State and sometimes beyond. Born and raised in California, I not only cover the crimes that have fascinated me over the years, but the ones that have fascinated you as well. With a backlog of hundreds of episodes and bonuses and dozens more on Patreon, you'll have countless hours to binge. And with soothing music and a unique, quiet intensity, you might just be lulled to sleep. Almost every episode is over an hour long, ad-free, with no loud bursts of music or audio clips. California Dreaming is available on all your favorite directories, so hit subscribe and give it a try. It just might be your new go-to bedtime podcast. You're listening to DNA ID. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 47, Janet Love. It was 1986. Robert and Nancy were really concerned. It was late on Thursday afternoon, April 24th, and their co-worker at Delta Airlines, Janet Love, hadn't come into work, and she didn't answer her phone when they tried to call her home number. This was not normal. Janet was only a few hours late for her 3.30 shift, but Robert was Janet's supervisor. He knew her to be a very dependable, reliable employee who would call in if something had come up. Nancy was a co-worker and good friend of Janet's, and knew her friend to be punctual and responsible. Something was wrong, they could feel it. They tried her home phone a few more times, but she never answered. Nancy left a message on Janet's answering machine at 4.50 p.m., but Janet didn't call back, and she didn't come into work. Around 5.15, Robert and Nancy decided to head to Janet's apartment. This was at the Park Village Apartment Complex, located at 2437 L. Don Dodson Drive in Bedford, Texas. Nancy had been to Janet's apartment several times and was familiar with its location. They arrived at the low-rise brick complex and saw Janet's car in the parking lot. They climbed the one set of exterior stairs to number 2105. The door was ajar about five inches. With trepidation, Robert and Nancy walked into Janet's apartment. A stark, naked Janet was lying face up on the floor, her face smeared with dried blood and a pool of blood around her head. The call to emergency services requesting an ambulance came at 5.45 p.m. A woman was severely injured, the caller reported. Firefighters responding to the scene quickly determined there was nothing they could do for the young woman on the floor, whom Nancy and Robert identified as their co-worker, Janet Love. EMTs could not immediately determine the cause of death, but I'm going to skip the suspense here. 
Janet had been shot once in the head. It was a homicide. Let's talk about who Janet was. Janet Elaine Love was born on September 22, 1953, to parents Charles Elvin Love and Dorothy Holloway Love. She was one of seven children born into the Louisiana family. Janet's siblings prefer to keep their names private, although they are available online, so I'm just going to refer to them as Janet's brothers and sisters throughout this episode. Family patriarch Charles Love passed away in 1980, and his widow, Dorothy, continued to live in Louisiana. As for Janet, she had graduated from Fair Park High School in Shreveport and then McNeese State University as a French major. She started working as a ticket agent for Delta Airlines on November 17, 1978, originally stationed in Shreveport. Janet moved around a bit while working for Delta. Back in those days, airline employees were stationed wherever the airline needed them, and they had to be ready to move with little notice. Janet had relocated to Atlanta in 1981 and then Oklahoma City in 1983 before moving to Bedford, Texas in May of 1985. She was stationed at DFW Airport, which is a massive facility serving both the cities of Dallas and Fort Worth. The airport itself is located within several different municipalities, Irving, Euless, Grapevine, and Koppel. It has its own zip code and United States Postal Service city designation, DFW Airport, Texas. And it's also serviced by its own police, fire, and emergency medical services. In her role as a ticket agent, Janet was one of the faces of Delta Airlines. Back in the 80s, would-be passengers had to either call the airline or go to an airport or airline ticket office in order to reserve, buy, or change airline tickets. Ticket agents like Janet had to be people people. And Janet was someone who projected a very professional image, enjoyed her job, and was very courteous, respectful, and efficient with all the airline customers with whom she interacted. At work, her colleagues knew her to be a bit of a stickler for protocols, a consummate professional who set high standards for herself and her colleagues. Janet's exacting attitude toward work was somewhat mirrored in her personal life. Janet had high expectations of men, and she was a bit disillusioned with them. In short, she was unlucky in love, but she also refused to settle. At 32 years old, she probably considered herself of an advanced age for marriage. Remember, Janet was a child of the 50s, with all that decade symbolized domestic bliss, white picket fences, suburbia. And she was a little bit bitter because she had almost been married, but her fiancé had called off the wedding before they got to the altar, leaving her feeling jilted and betrayed. She had never fully recovered. Her friend and assistant Lilia said that Janet was a bit disheartened by her failure to maintain a relationship, and she had the perception that her male co-workers considered her something of a man-hater. I'll address Janet's love life a little more later because that's largely where police looked for suspects. In her spare time, Janet liked to travel. Being an airline employee has its perks, and Janet liked to go places with her friends, almost exclusively co-workers from Delta. She had gone to San Diego over Easter with her friend Nancy, the one who found her. And she had just returned to Texas a week before her death, after visiting family in Louisiana, where she stayed with her sister. In January, Janet and her co-worker Terry had started attending a Bible study group at the North Richland Hills Baptist Church. Janet had only attended for three months or so before scaling back, though. She liked to ride her bike and spend time with her puppy. Her hobby was refinishing furniture, which was evident from the elegant antique pieces decorating her organized apartment. 
And while she was quietly seeking a partner to fill what she perceived as something of a void in her life, as a rule, Janet did not party or go to bars alone. She preferred to socialize in groups and spent time with quite a few friends, both male and female. Hers was a very low-risk lifestyle. Okay, back to the scene of the crime. Bedford, Texas is one of the three so-called mid-cities towns comprising the Hearst, Euless, Bedford suburban area. These suburbs are right in between the large cities of Dallas and Fort Worth, and a lot of Bedford residents commute to work in one of those large urban areas. The Park Village apartment complex, now called Kensington Station, where Janet resided, was a series of red brick apartment buildings that were all part of the same complex. These weren't high-rise buildings, but two-story condo-like buildings with several units in each building. The massive complex comprised 26 buildings, each with multiple units. Woods surrounded the complex on one side, and on the other, different complexes filled out the residential community of Bedford. The Park Village complex was home to a wide variety of people of varying socioeconomic levels, although they were predominantly lower-middle-class working folks. The complex saw lots and lots of turnover, with people moving in and out, and even between different apartments, constantly. Janet's apartment was a moderate-sized two-bedroom. It was on the second floor of the building, which was the top floor of the two-story structure. And as police saw it, there were two possible points of entry. One was the front door, which was at the top of the stairs from the street level, sharing a landing with just one other unit. The other way to gain access to the apartment was via a balcony overlooking the street, which spanned the length of Janet's living room. But to be clear, this wasn't actually an entrance. Sliding doors led from the balcony into Janet's apartment, but the balcony was not accessible from the street. From looking at the crime scene photos, it appears that it would have been difficult for someone to climb up to Janet's balcony from the street level. No, it was much more likely that someone had come in through the front door. Janet was found lying on her back on the floor right inside the front door at the edge of the living room, which abutted the kitchen as part of an open floor plan. Her body lay between one of the matching end tables on either end of the sofa and the fireplace on the south wall of the living room. Dried blood was smeared on her face. She was cold to the touch and post-mortem lividity had set in. It was evident to all the first responders that she had been dead for some time. Firefighter B.J. Sewell, one of the first on the scene, verified that Janet was deceased. Then he made sure no one else was in the apartment while they waited eight minutes for police. As it happened, an off-duty officer for the Bedford PD was a resident of the complex where he also worked security. This officer, Cantrell, saw all the commotion and went over to Unit 2105 at 5.45 p.m. Firefighter Sewell and the EMTs told him that a woman was dead inside. Officer Cantrell observed the body and advised paramedics to treat the scene as a crime scene. In other words, take care to preserve any evidence. At that point, Bedford PD Corporal Smith and Officer Bowers arrived and a crime scene tech was called in. Officers closed off the apartment to preserve the scene pending the CSI's arrival. Janet was left lying on the floor so CSI's could observe the scene as it was found. Investigator Rhonda Moore was the on-call crime scene investigator. She arrived at 5.55 p.m. She had already been notified that the victim was deceased. Investigator Moore was assisted by Bedford investigators Udy and Simpson. Bedford PD Sergeant Flory was the case supervisor, also at the scene. 
A CSI from Forensic Consultant Services, Max Courtney, arrived on the scene at 7.05 p.m. and took charge. He summarized his observations in a very thorough death investigation report, which I reviewed. He viewed the body in place and made some important observations about the state of the body and bodily fluid evidence. Courtney observed that the body was in full rigor. Lividity patterns were consistent with the position of the body on its back with one arm up above the head. Dried blood was smeared on various body parts. Blood had pooled under Janet's head and soaked into the carpet. Three round drops of blood stained the hearth near her head, and Courtney could tell that the drops were of medium velocity and had fallen from higher up rather than low. The implication was that Janet was shot while she was standing up. A drop of blood was in Janet's right hand and had dripped onto the floor again from a higher angle. No high-velocity blood spatter was found in the apartment, and there were no bloodstains on the walls or ceiling. Actually, there was no blood anywhere else in the apartment at all. Since Janet was found nude, Courtney visually checked Janet's body and the area around her body for signs of seminal fluid. He didn't see any. The same was true for the bedspread on the bed. It was up to the autopsy to determine whether Janet had been sexually assaulted. But before she was removed by the medical examiner, Max Courtney lifted several hairs and fibers from the back side of the body and a hair from Janet's left index finger inside her closed hand. These hairs did not have intact follicles, so they were deemed of little evidentiary value. The medical examiner on duty, R. Medford, was notified that his presence was required at the Park Village apartment at 6.10 p.m. When he arrived, he scanned the body and then released the scene to the police. When the crime scene tech and police investigators were done observing the body in place, at 11.30 p.m., personnel from Meissner Brown Ambulance Service wrapped it in white sheets and removed Janet to the Tarrant County Morgue for autopsy. That procedure was performed the next morning, April 25th, at 10.50 a.m., by Tarrant County Deputy Chief M.E. Dr. Mark Krause. He listed the body as 67 inches in length, 150 pounds, a 32-year-old white female. Dr. Krause was quickly able to determine the cause of death. Janet had been shot in the right temple just inside her hairline, and she had a head of very dark, very curly hair. For this reason, the gunshot wound was not immediately apparent to the first responders at the scene. The autopsy report cites a close contact entry gunshot wound on the right temporal scalp. The gunshot wound was measured at three sixteenths of an inch in diameter. Sooty powder was observed in the wound, and a contusion measuring eleven sixteenths of an inch surrounded it, consistent with a contact gunshot wound in hair-covered skin. Per the report, the single shot to the head caused catastrophic damage disruption of the right temporal bone and orbital roofs and right and left cerebral hemispheres with diffuse intracranial hemorrhage. What this medical jargon means is that the bullet entered the skull, bounced off the left side, fracturing it, and came to rest inside Janet's brain. A severely distorted, small-caliber, non-jacketed projectile was removed from her left occipital lobe. It was determined to be a twenty-two caliber bullet. The official cause of death was respiratory failure due to acute cerebral laceration and intracranial hemorrhage due to gunshot wound of the head. Unfortunately, Janet's body exhibited evidence that she had suffered some trauma before being shot. The medical examiner found external and internal evidence of blunt injuries of the neck consistent with manual strangulation. There was also external evidence of acute blunt injuries of Janet's chest, back, left shoulder, and left tibial region. 
Two fresh contusions were evident on her chest near the clavicle and on her right breast, as well as on her tibia. Despite these injuries, Janet had no wounds or bruising to her hands or arms, indicating she had fought her attacker. Remember that Janet was found lying on the floor in her apartment, face up. Detectives in the case submitted the crime scene photos to a blood spatter expert named Judith Bunker. After reviewing the images and the autopsy report, Bunker concluded, based on the blood pooling around Janet's head and dried blood on her face, that the victim had likely been turned over after she was shot. Dr. Krauss noted in his report that there was significant damage to Janet's genital area. We've seen in several cases incidents of sexual assault that left very little to no visible injuries to the female genitalia. That wasn't the case here. External and internal evidence indicated vaginal contusion, clitoral contusion, and mucosal lacerations of the perineum. The medical examiner concluded that Janet had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. UV light also revealed the presence of pale yellowish fluid in the vagina. Subsequent recovery of this fluid with a syringe and swabs revealed, quote, copious amounts of milky coagulated material estimated at 4 to 5 milliliters total volume, end quote. As we've learned over many previous episodes, large deposits of semen that have not flowed out of the vaginal opening strongly imply that the victim's death coincided with or was in very close temporal proximity to her death. Dr. Krauss collected all this evidence in a sexual assault kit, which, when tested, showed that, sure enough, sperm was present. Dr. Krauss's report states, quote, Additional examination of the external body's surfaces with UV light reveals small amounts of fluorescent fibrous material over the pubic hair, neck, and scalp, end quote. He collected these fibers via tape lifts, and the fibers were placed on slides and preserved, but no one has ever been able to determine their origin. The pathologist also collected hair, fingernail cuttings, the sheet wrapped around the nude body, and pubic hair combings. And one more thing. The medical examiner observed that Janet was still wearing evident eye makeup in the form of eyeliner, mascara, and eyeshadow. After the autopsy, Janet's body was removed to the Arden Funeral Home in Glenmore. Her family was notified of her death by Delta Airlines, who contacted the next of kin located in her personnel file. So often you'll hear me saying there were no signs of a struggle as I'm describing the murder scenes, but here there were. In Janet's entryway, right inside the front door, there was a coat rack and a marble table. The coat rack was cracked, and Robert later told investigators that when he and Nancy arrived at the apartment, they had found it lying on the ground perpendicular to the bar area. They had to move it to check the body for a pulse. Hats were scattered around the floor. Several glass jars and tchotchkes were knocked off the little table as well. It seemed as though Janet had been assaulted by her attacker in the foyer area, which was very near the living room area where she came to rest. This part was weird, though. Janet's Delta Airlines uniform was all neatly folded on a master bedroom chair. Max Courtney's report states that the clothes were stacked on the chair, quote, in logical order of removal, end quote. I saw photos of the chair right in front of a master bedroom window with open drapes. The chair has clothes laid on it, including the uniform, hosiery, and a bra, as if someone had just taken these items off. Janet's sensible, low-heeled pumps were on the floor under the chair as if she just slipped them off her feet. 
Max Courtney's report observes that the crotch area of Janet's pantyhose was dry and free of stains. It appeared either that Janet had been allowed to undress herself or her killer was a neat freak. Some items of jewelry that Janet was believed to have been wearing that day were also found on top of the bureau near the chair with the stacked clothing. When investigators arrived, a lamp in the northwest bedroom, the master, was on. A light in the utility room was also on, but no other lights were on. And all the drapes in the apartment were open. This would seem to indicate that Janet was attacked in the daytime, which, as we'll see, didn't really add up with the timeline investigators came to establish. A purse and a set of keys was on top of the stereo set in the living room, with unopened mail lying beneath them. It was really starting to look like Janet had just gotten home when she was interrupted by something or someone that resulted in her death. The closet door in the entryway was closed, but the closet door in Janet's bedroom was found open. The bedroom windows were closed but unlocked, but there were no marks around them or on the ground below indicating that they'd been opened from the exterior, which would have required a ladder. The balcony doors were closed and locked, but the drapes were open. The front door was noted not to have the deadbolt engaged, and remember, Nancy and Robert had found it open. Crime scene techs poured over the apartment looking for bullet holes, creases, or other indications of gunfire, but found nothing. The bullet in Janet's head was the only indication that a firearm had been discharged at all. No items within the apartment contained any blood, hair, or tissue that implied that they had been used to strike Janet. Evidence collected included petite piles of dog poop that was in various places in the living and dining room areas of the apartment. This was very odd, considering that Janet's apartment was immaculate. Max Courtney's notes say that, quote, The premises searched were neat, orderly, and clean. Many surfaces checked for fingerprints appeared to have been recently cleaned, end quote. Soon the culprit was found. Janet's miniature schnauzer puppy named Fritz was cowering under a chair in the living room. Janet had gotten Fritz recently from a litter born to her sister's dog. It appeared that Fritz had no choice but to relieve himself in the hours between when he was last taken for a walk and Janet was found. This was a good indicator to police that Janet had been attacked several hours earlier. When a police officer picked up Fritz to remove him from the apartment, the poor thing peed a little bit and some of it got on Janet's legs. Police noted that a baby gate of sorts was set up separating the kitchen area from the rest of the apartment, and dog toys were in the kitchen. It looked like Fritz was supposed to be penned in the kitchen. But this part's really sad. Sergeant Brett Bowen of the Bedford Police, who closed this case, told me that when he viewed photos of Janet's body, there were some strange, feathery, faded patterns in blood on Janet's thigh. It took him a minute to figure out what had made those patterns. The fur of Janet's little dog who got blood on himself and transferred it to Janet when he curled up next to her body. I'm so excited to welcome our new sponsor, Magic Mind. I'm now an official Magic Mind ambassador. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because this little elixir really works and has made a big difference for me. Like many people with busy lives, I rely on caffeine to give me a boost in the morning. And I like a little green tea after lunch to get me through the afternoon, a time when I find my energy levels dip. But I'm also someone who, as I get older, can't tolerate too much caffeine. It makes me jittery and messes with my sleep. I've had to cut back. But that's not a problem because since I discovered Magic Mind, I need much less caffeine to stay energized. I keep my Magic Mind shots in the fridge and have one every morning after my regular cup of coffee. And that's it. 
That's all I need to maintain steady and consistent levels of productivity throughout the day without that dragging feeling I used to get in the afternoons. That's because Magic Mind extends the benefits of caffeine for more long-term release. But that's not all this delicious little shot does for me and hopefully will do for you. Magic Mind is a curated compound of several high-end ingredients like ashwagandha, nootropics, and matcha that together contribute to reduce stress and anxiety, better sleep, consistent energy, and less inflammation throughout the body, among other things. Before sampling it, I ran the ingredients in Magic Mind by my dear friend who's a nutritionist, and she raved about it. So I tried it, and I've received all the benefits I've described, plus I've noticed a decrease in my blood pressure, which is a good thing. I'm making my husband try Magic Mind, and I have sent some to my nutritionist friend as well so she can recommend it to her clients. That's how convinced I am that it works. So where can you get Magic Mind to try it for yourself? It will be sent right to your door so you don't have to do a thing. And don't worry, it's not nearly as expensive as you would think considering it took Magic Mind seven years to develop. If you subscribe for regular monthly shipments of Magic Mind, it costs even less. You just need to use my discount code DNA14 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your purchase if you choose not to subscribe. The best part is they have a money back guarantee, but I know you're going to love it. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days though, so hurry up guys. Also, Magic Mind's new 14 Days of Magic program is a fun and exciting way to reap the benefits of the Magic Mind product and contribute to global positivity all at once. Film yourself throughout your 14-day Magic Mind journey and post your video mashup showing the benefits you've gained from using the product using the hashtag 14 Days of Magic. For every 10,000 views the hashtag challenge generates, Magic Mind will donate $10 towards the reforestation of the Amazon rainforest. You can do your own part while enhancing your own productivity, energy, and focus. Don't forget to use the DNA ID promo code DNA14 to obtain your 14-day supply, or even better, subscribe for regular deliveries of Magic Mind. And watch the donations live on Instagram at Magic Mind on November 30th, 2022. Go to www.magicmind.co slash DNA. Again, that's www.magicmind.co slash DNA and enter the code DNA14. Given the neatness of the apartment, another aspect of the crime scene stood out to Sergeant Flory and Max Courtney when they went through the apartment. The bed in the guest room was neatly made, but the bed in the master bedroom, Janet's room, was in total disarray. Flory's report states that two pillows were removed from their shams, the bedspread was all messed up, throw pillows were tossed around, and the two empty shams lay on top of the bedspread near an afghan which was drooping onto the floor. It was immediately apparent that Janet would not have arranged the bed in this fashion, and it told investigators that some kind of struggle or attack had gone down on the bed. Even if she'd been getting into bed when she was attacked, it was too disrupted to have been typical. Max Courtney collected several hairs off the bedspread and pillows and preserved them in evidence. And then, this is the weirdest part of all. Investigators eagerly collected a telephone answering machine that was in Janet's bedroom. This being 1986, the machine was the old kind where a mini cassette tape was inside, recording all the non-answered calls to the apartment. The machine itself was set to answer mode, which was further indication that Janet had just gotten home. People don't usually have their machines set to pick up when they're home to answer the phone. But that was the weird thing. There was no phone. The machine was connected to a phone cord, and an empty jack reflected just where the phone was supposed to go, but it was missing. 
The phone was never found in the apartment or anywhere else. This, detectives noted, was an odd thing to take. The answering machine would be far more likely to contain incriminating evidence. A phone was useless without its cord and was an odd trophy to say the least. But the killer had clearly deliberately removed the phone. The intact jack and undamaged cord showed someone had carefully disconnected the device. When Nancy and Robert Janet's co-workers went to call police after finding Janet, they had to ask a neighbor to use the phone since they couldn't find Janet's, even though Nancy knew it was always attached to the answering machine. Sergeant Flory played back the tape on the machine. There was a message from Nancy at 4.50 p.m. that said, quote, Janet, you're not at work. We're all very concerned about you. If you thought you had a day off, you weren't scheduled to be off. I've got permission to come look for you. If you come in in the meantime, please call Phil and tell him where you're at. There were no other messages on the tape. Sergeant Flory removed the tape from the recordophone machine and placed it in evidence. After all this other stuff was done, Max Courtney dusted the place for Prince. He was thorough, sprinkling the black powder on every door, doorknob and light switch, the toilet and vanity top, the mantle, the kitchen counter. Four prints were found there, but no other identifiable prints were located. Then the floors in the apartment were observed under a special light to detect any footprints. None were found. The whole place was photographed inside and out to document the scene, and Courtney also prepared a two-scale sketch of the entire apartment. They took note of what appeared to be a man's brown felt cowboy hat and photographed it in case the killer left it behind. Finally, the investigators examined the bedding, carpets, and clothing in the apartment with ultraviolet light looking for trace stains or fibers, but nothing unusual was found. Searches of the exterior of the apartment found no observable footprints and no ladder prints up to the balcony. The trash bins outside were nearly empty. An old abandoned farmhouse about 300 yards from Janet's apartment was searched and found to have a bunch of trash and discarded machinery inside, but no clues. And there were no footprints in the soft soil between the barn and the apartment building. Whoever had come for Janet had not crossed the field north of her building. Instead, they'd almost certainly come from the parking lot. Speaking of the parking lot, Janet's Ford Escort was found parked in the lot right at the bottom of the stairs to her apartment. The doors were locked and no fingerprints were detected on the outside. The interior of the car was inspected as well, although the old police records I saw don't show whether the interior was dusted for prints. One of the first things investigators did was inquire in the complex leasing office as to who had master keys to the units. Since there was no forced entry to apartment 2105, and the prevailing theory was that someone had accessed it that night and or was waiting in the apartment for Janet to arrive home, this was a logical avenue of inquiry. Five employees had keys, including a maintenance man whose name went on the list of people police wanted to talk to. Police also ran background checks on the complex employees as well. Investigators wrapped up their examination of the apartment and cleared the scene at 1.15 a.m. on Friday morning. They struck out looking for anything to indicate that Janet was into anything nefarious. No drugs or contraband were found. The apartment was sparkling. If it weren't for the blood around the victim lying on the floor, it would be very difficult to discern that a crime had taken place at all. Through conversations with Janet's friends and colleagues, investigators learned quite a lot about her everyday routine. Janet worked the 3.30 to 11.30 shift five days a week. On a typical workday, she would grab her mail from the complex's main office on the way out as she left for work around 2.30 p.m. 
She wore contact lenses and her Delta uniform to work. On the way home in the evenings, she habitually took her contact lenses out and put her glasses on before driving home. Sometimes she would stop at Skaggs Grocery to pick up some food on the way home, too. Typically, arriving home, she would put her purse and keys down and take a hot shower. Janet's friend Nancy said that Janet was very conscientious about security and would keep the door locked. She left the shades open during the day but would close them at night. But remember, all the shades in the apartment were found open. According to those who knew her best, although Janet typically did not wear underwear under her hosiery, she was absolutely not the type to walk around her apartment naked the way she'd been found, much less open the door for anyone naked. It was out of the question. She didn't sleep in the nude either. On Thursday, April 23rd, Janet had gone to work. She had an unremarkable day, eating an early dinner during her break. She finished up her usual shift, left DFW, and, police believed, drove directly home. She parked in front of her own unit in the complex parking lot and locked her car. She made it into the apartment. The question was, what happened after that? Police believe she was killed very shortly after she got home and that she was killed where she was found. This meshed with what the medical examiner was telling them, but it also worked with a window of time established by statements from some of Janet's neighbors. Sergeant Flory instructed investigators Schusler and Denny to canvass the neighbors to see if they could find any witnesses. The two officers went door-to-door in Janet's building and also all the others in the complex to see if anyone had seen, heard, or noticed anything at all that could shed some light on what had happened. A neighbor named Heather D., who lived downstairs from Janet in Unit 1106, reported that she and her husband Dean were asleep on the night of Wednesday, April 23rd, to Thursday the 24th. Loud screaming woke them up. This was at 12.25 a.m. Heather said there were three distinct, desperate screams calling for help. She and Dean listened for a while, but thereafter heard nothing, and so they went back to sleep. Another neighbor named Judy T., who lived in apartment 2106 in the adjacent building behind Janet, reported that sometime between 12.15 and 12.30 a.m. on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, she heard struggling and screaming and a sound like something pounding on the walls, but she wasn't sure where the noises were coming from. A Terry D., resident of 2433 L. Don Dodson Drive, number 2097, in yet another building in the complex, came into the complex office the next morning and reported something. His apartment was about 100 yards from Janet's, and he said around 12.30 in the morning on the 24th, he was on his landing when he heard a muffled gunshot. He guessed it was a caliber larger than a twenty-two, and it sounded as though it came from indoors. Okay, so really? Screams, thuds, calls for help, shots, and no one's going to call the police? The Bedford police station was literally right down the street, a one-minute drive down L. Don Dodson Drive. If these neighbors had called 911 at the first disturbing and very unusual noises, the chances are wailing sirens could have deterred the shooter, and Janet might still be alive. I felt a little better when I read some 2001 comments by then-lead investigator Bill Pond. He told the Fort Worth Star Tribune that, quote, People heard screams, one guy heard a gunshot, but nobody bothered to call. I think it was an era of mind your own business. Now, I think if four people heard it, we'd probably get three calls, end quote. I guess the 80s were more laissez-faire. I hope Pond is right and the bystander effect has greatly diminished. 
Anyway, the reports by the neighbors were helpful at establishing what time the attack on Janet went down, but no one could add any details about hearing a man's voice or seeing anyone entering the building or fleeing the scene. A UPS delivery driver named Roger Lewis told police he had delivered a package to the apartment next to Nancy's at 10.15 a.m. on the 24th, the Thursday. As he mounted the stairs to the landing, he noticed that the door to number 2105, Janet's apartment, was open about 10 inches, and he could hear a dog barking inside. He left the package outside the neighbor's apartment and left. The resident of this apartment, Belinda Hargrove, narrowed the timeline down even further. She noted the door to Janet's apartment was slightly ajar when she left for work that morning at 6.20 a.m. So let's review the timeline fleshed out by interviews with some of Janet's colleagues of Janet's last few hours on Wednesday night, April 23rd. Janet's co-worker Phil had worked with Janet on the last day of her life. He said she was in a great mood that day. He told police that he, Janet, a guy named Brian M., and a couple of other Delta employees all left DFW together just after 11.30 p.m., and they rode the air trans to the employee parking lot. Phil hadn't actually seen Janet get to her car, though. Brian M. also said that Janet was in a good mood, but he didn't see her get to her car either. The last person seen talking to Janet at the airport was an Eric E., who walked with Janet to the far parking lot to find their cars. Police spoke with Eric, who told them that he had not actually witnessed Janet getting into her car. They walked together and then separated and went to their separate vehicles. No one, it seemed, had actually seen Janet get safely to her automobile. The AirTrans ride from DFW to the employee lot took plus or minus 20 minutes. It was a 15-minute drive from the parking lot to Janet's apartment complex. This puts the time when Janet would have arrived home at just about 5 minutes after midnight, maybe 12.10. She parked and went inside. Neighbors heard the distressing sounds around 12.30 a.m., which are believed to be the time her attack occurred. This left a very small window of time between her arrival home and the assailant's assault. What this meant was there were just a few options for what had happened to Janet. One, she brought someone she knew home with her, an argument ensued, and she was killed. Two, someone she knew came over after she was already home and ditto, an argument, and Janet was shot. Three, Janet was abducted as she left work and forced to drive home where she was assaulted and shot. Four, Janet was home alone when someone broke in or was waiting for her just outside the apartment when she arrived and she was killed. This last option was terrifying, of course, because it meant that someone was almost certainly watching her, knew her routine, and patiently awaited her arrival home. In this scenario, Janet unlocked her front door and the attacker hiding somewhere in the shadows of the landing pounced, resulting in the knocked-over coat rack and hallway decor. But it seems unlikely that If this were the case, Janet would have set her mail, purse, and keys down on the stereo. She probably would have dropped them or left them right in the entranceway on the table. And that raised the possibility of another, even more frightening scenario, the one that investigators believe actually happened. The phone being missing is one of the puzzling aspects of this case. The investigators quickly came to suspect that it was much more than just a unique trophy taken by the killer as a memento of Janet. Yes, the guy took it with him when he left the apartment. But what if the removal of the phone was a strategic move? What if the killer had unplugged and hidden the phone to prevent Janet from using it to call for help? 
What that implied was it was probable that he was in the apartment when she arrived home. Because if he waylaid her outside her door, he would not need to remove the phone. He would likely have subdued Janet with the gun or with threats, intimidation, or incapacitation, and she would have had no chance to grab the phone all the way in the bedroom and dial 911. The fact that he did remove the phone seemed to point to a plan and an entry into the apartment that preceded Janet's. Sergeant Bowen and I discussed Janet's case at length. We looked at the crime scene photos, which helped inform his personal theory about what happened. It was Janet's habit to walk her dog nightly when she returned home from work. Fritz, still a puppy, had been cooped up in the apartment for hours by then, and was no doubt eager for an outdoor romp. So Janet came in, dropped her mail, keys, and purse on the stereo, and put Fritz's leash on and went back out the door and down the stairs to the grassy area near the parking lot. When she did this, she didn't lock the door. Who would? She was probably outside for just a few minutes. She felt she was safe with Fritz, who would bark if anyone approached, and no one was around anyway, since it was past midnight on a weekday. While Janet was outside, the killer slipped up the stairs and in the unlocked door. He had been watching Janet and was familiar with her routine. Remember I talked about the chair in Janet's bedroom, the one that had her Delta uniform laid on it? That chair was directly in front of a window, which overlooked a large wooded area behind the apartment complex. When Janet was found, the drapes were open. It appears that Janet's nightly routine of undressing after work involved possibly shedding her clothes right in front of that window, which she believed was viewable by no one since it was just woods out there. But someone, Sergeant Bowen believes, was out there watching. So while Janet and Fritz were doing their business, the killer was lurking in the shadows somewhere, perhaps behind a parked car or under the stairway to the second floor. The whole area was reportedly very poorly lit by only one light from across the street. With Janet's door unlocked, he stealthily slipped inside, unplugged the phone, and disappeared into the closet in Janet's bedroom. When she returned from her walk, she came into the bedroom to take her customary shower. She undressed, laying her things on the chair. She took off her jewelry and put it on the dresser. But remember that Janet was found with her eye makeup still pristine, as it would have been before her shower that night. When she was nude and preparing to enter the ensuite bathroom, the killer emerged from the closet. And you know the rest. Given this scenario, I wondered how the killer, lurking inside the apartment, kept Fritz from barking. Schnauzers are barky dogs. Shout out to my childhood miniature schnauzer, Rip Raisin. They will bark nonstop at strangers. Yet only the UPS driver at 10 a.m. the next day reported hearing a dog barking from Janet's apartment. Did Janet maybe leave Fritz penned in the kitchen behind the gate when she went to shower, and the dog didn't witness the attack? Was Fritz so frightened that he just hid? Or, police wondered, was it possible that the killer was someone familiar to the dog? Or both? It was all a mystery. A memorial service for Janet was held at First Baptist Church in Grapevine on Tuesday, April 29th. It was somber. Most of the people in attendance were Janet's colleagues, about 70 to 80 of them. Bedford Police Investigators Flory, Udy, Moore, and Denny also attended, scoping out the crowd for any unusual or suspicious behavior, noting the license plates of attendees, and copying the guest book. Janet's family held a more personal service for her at home in Louisiana on April 27th. She was buried at Alexandria Memorial Gardens in Oakdale. Fritz was given a happy forever home with one of Janet's brothers. 
On April 30th, the media reported that police had no suspects and no leads in the case. Police were one week into what would prove to be an incredibly complex, frustrating, decades-long investigation. All right, I'm backing up a little bit here to discuss some more details of the investigation. On the 28th, four days after Janet was found, Sergeant Flory and, and Lieutenant Udy of the BPD sat down with members of Janet's family who had arrived in town after receiving the horrific news. They discussed the details of Janet's personal life, and police started to compile a list of men they needed to talk to. Janet didn't have a boyfriend at the time of her death, but her family gave the investigators the names of two exes who, they felt, should be looked at. These were Larry H. and John G. Neither lived in Texas, but they both had significant history with Janet. I'll get into Larry and John in a little bit. But first, let's talk about what police were up against here. They had no idea who would kill Janet, and they weren't even sure whether it was someone she knew or not. All they knew was that it was a man who somehow gained entry to her apartment. As a result, every single male name that came up in the course of the investigation basically had to be added to the list, investigated, and either ruled out or moved to the persons of interest list. Janet's life was punctuated with a decent amount of drama, and she had come across a lot of men, so this was an uphill battle. Because any one guy whose name investigators came across could be the one they were looking for. No one was off the table. For example, Christina M. was a Delta Airlines employee who lived with Janet in Oklahoma City. They were very good friends and talked on the phone at least weekly. In fact, Christina last spoke to Janet on the 23rd, the last day she was alive. Janet had told Christina about a number of men over the past year or so, guys she dated casually and a fling or two she had. Christina conveyed the names she knew, and she made sure to mention that there was a male co-worker whom Janet did not get along with. In fact, Christina had heard that Janet, quote, had words with this male co-worker on the very night of her death. Janet's assistant at work, Lilia, was able to shed some light on this last bit of information. She last saw Janet on the last night of her life around 11.30 p.m., walking down the hallway with another employee, Brian M., as they were leaving work after their shifts. Remember, Janet took the air trans to the parking lot with several male colleagues, all of whom were questioned. Anyway, Lilia gave the police some information about this dispute with a male co-worker. Janet had recently had a falling out with an assistant who worked beneath her named John D. Basically, Janet felt that John was slacking at work. She got on his back about his lackadaisical work ethic, and they had words that evening. He ended up leaving the work area for the rest of his shift. Lilia told police that most people liked Janet, but some did not like to work for her because she was considered very demanding, striving for perfection. John D. was questioned and admitted to not getting along with Janet. He confirmed that he found her overbearing and demanding. But he denied killing her. Was this seemingly minor spat between colleagues a motive for murder, police wondered? Or just a harmless agreement to disagree, the kind that happens in workplaces all over the world on a daily basis? John was eventually ruled out, but there were many, many more names that came across detectives' desks, every one of which had to be addressed and vetted. Another complicating factor in the investigation was that police weren't sure whose assertions about Janet to give the most weight. It has to be said that Janet was in the midst of some girl drama involving her friend Nancy, the one who found her body. To put it bluntly, Nancy was an officious busybody who seemed to relish the attention of the investigators. 
she took it upon herself to be in constant contact with them, calling them up and relaying the names of any man she could come up with who might have known Janet. She presented herself as Janet's BFF, who knew everything about her and who had all sorts of air quotes information for police. But this wasn't entirely true. Nancy and Janet had been quite good friends until a major falling out in early April. Lilia and others among Janet's friends told the investigators that Nancy and Janet had had a disagreement at the end of their Easter vacation trip to San Diego. Apparently, Janet was peeved that despite their agreement to split the cost of the trip, Nancy let Janet pay for the trip and never paid her back. Janet told Lilia that Nancy was playing head games with her. Janet was hurt over this, but other employees felt that Janet was better off with a little distance between her and Nancy. Lilia said that Nancy caused a lot of problems for Janet, both personally and professionally, and she didn't want police to fall for the facade of this, quote, great friendship. Hope C. was another co-worker and friend of Janet's who called police and said she wanted to discuss the murder. She was a good enough friend of Janet's that they had an upcoming trip to El Paso planned together. Hope also warned police about putting too much stock in Nancy's claims, and she said she and Janet weren't friends since they're falling out over money and that Nancy picked on Janet about her weight and being single. Janet's friend Tara P. also wanted to corroborate what police were hearing about Nancy being a less-than-reliable source. Police had witnessed Nancy overstepping her bounds and insisting on entering Janet's apartment when Janet's family was there going through her things. And friends of Janet's complained that Nancy, who found Janet, seemed to relish telling everyone about the murder and describing in embellished and graphic detail how blood was splattered on the walls, Janet was splayed out lewdly, and the phone was missing. Janet's two sisters also stated that they felt Nancy was an issue and seemed fixated on the crime scene tableau and telling everyone about the indignities that Janet had suffered. In fact, she was so obsessed with talking about it, they actually wondered whether Nancy was involved somehow. Nancy's inserting herself constantly in the investigation also raised the eyebrows of the investigators, given Nancy and Janet's recent rift. Police thought it unlikely that Nancy actually killed Janet, but that didn't mean she wasn't involved. Police thought it was possible that Nancy's husband, Caesar, might have been responsible if there was some sort of love triangle. Or his friend, Richie, with whom Janet and the couple had double dated, could have done it. Janet initially really liked Richie, and the two had enjoyed a brief time together. But then she ended up rejecting him because she said he drank too much. Police ran background checks on these two men, and Nancy's husband was questioned, which Nancy was so upset about that she complained to being targeted by investigators. Meanwhile, she was the one putting herself in the crosshairs. Anyway, both Caesar and Richie were ruled out when they were determined to be out of state on the night of the murder, but for a while it was quite a sordid saga for police to try to unravel. There was a lot of drama within the airline employee ranks. And furthermore, right after the murder, Delta coincidentally relocated a bunch of the employees assigned to DFW, and they scattered to other airports all over the country. For obvious reasons, this impeded investigators' ability to follow up with many of Janet's colleagues who might have had important information. On May 2nd, Max Courtney of Forensics Consultant Services, Forensic Consultant Services contacted the Bedford police with the results of his ballistics analysis of the 22 caliber bullet removed from Janet's head. He noted little discernible rifling pattern on the bullet and was not certain the striation marks on the bullet were sufficient to permit comparison to other bullets, should one be found. Courtney explained that it was a copper-washed bullet instead of a jacketed one. 
The most common manufacturers were CCI and Winchester. It wasn't a lot to go on, but investigator Rhonda Moore noted the possible significance of the weapon being a twenty-two. In some intricacy of Texas laws at the time, young persons under the age of twenty-one who wanted to buy guns were limited to purchasing twenty-twos. As a result, young adults were the primary age group owning this type of weapon. It was something worth noting. Various papers and materials were collected at Janet's apartment that police thought looked as though they might be helpful. One of these was a pamphlet for a slightly more upscale apartment building down the street called the Arbors of Bedford. It was printed on March 31st, just weeks before Janet's death. Someone had jotted rent payments down on the pamphlet, indicating that perhaps Janet was contemplating moving. If so, why? This is total speculation, but given what we'll learn about the numbers of creepy guys inhabiting her apartment complex, I would not be surprised if Janet wanted a change of venue. Unfortunately, the leasing agent at the Arbors did not recall talking to Janet, and as far as we know, she never told anyone that she was considering relocating. So this will remain firmly in the speculative realm. One of Janet's brothers contacted the Bedford police investigators about a vision his daughter, whose first initial is D, Janet's niece, had of the murder. In her visualization of the crime, two men were involved. One stood and watched while the other killed Janet. D said she believed that Janet knew her assailant and was possibly emotionally involved with him. The man she saw was a white male, approximately 35 years old and six feet tall, with a square build. He had wavy brown hair and a full beard and mustache. D underwent hypnosis and worked with a sketch artist through the Louisiana State Police to create a composite sketch of the man she saw. The image of the man D believed killed Janet was very, very specific. Investigators gave a lot more credence to this vision than I would have anticipated, but I guess they weren't in a position to dismiss any leads, however incredible. And as it turned out, decades later. The sketch prepared of the man D believed had killed Janet actually very closely resembled the man who actually did kill Janet, compared to photos of him at the time. And although she'd never been at Janet's apartment, D described it accurately. I'm a skeptic of these types of visions, but I saw the sketch and a photo of the killer side by side, and the resemblance is eerie. I don't have an explanation. A letter from the FBI's criminal profiling unit to the Bedford Police Department, dated February twelfth, nineteen eighty-seven, lays out a criminal personality profile prepared in Janet's case. The profiler says the attack on Janet was sexually motivated, and it was not a robbery gone bad. He or she states that, given Janet's low-risk lifestyle, quote, some familiarity existed between this victim and her assailant. End quote. The profiler elaborated that this did not mean that the killer was someone Janet knew. Quote, Since the victim arrived home late sometime after midnight, we find it difficult to accept the fact that a total stranger just happened upon the victim while she was out walking the dog. What they meant was someone was watching her. Quote, It's highly likely that an unknown assailant may have entered the residence while the victim was outside. In summary, we suspect the assailant knew the routine of the victim, and such knowledge was gained by his familiarity with the neighborhood. This familiarity may have been obtained by his employment or his residence within the area. It's further indicated the assailant felt very confident and comfortable in the neighborhood. End quote. Okay, let's take a look at some actual suspects. 
And in order to do that, we have to first take a look at Janet's love life. Janet had been engaged back in Shreveport to a guy named John G. The two had made all their wedding plans when John pulled the plug, telling Janet he wasn't ready to be married. Janet's family didn't care for John, feeling that he was not fiscally responsible and was immature, which clearly he was, since he let things with Janet get so far before he chickened out. But Nancy, Janet's friend and somewhat controversial co-worker whom we've discussed at length, told investigators that Janet never got over John, and more importantly, that the two were in touch. Not only in touch, but in physical touch. About three months before her violent murder, Janet traveled to Baton Rouge to visit John, where he was living when she was killed. Nancy said that Janet had hopes that they would get back together, and that when she returned to Bedford, she feared she might be pregnant. She wasn't, but she also wasn't re-engaged to John. Janet confided in many other female friends about her continuing saga with John. Her friend Christina said that Janet talked to him just three weeks before her death. Others detailed the on-again, off-again nature of the relationship. Janet's sister said that Janet was in regular contact with John, and the relationship was stormy. It sounds to me like he was enjoying keeping her dangling. Anyway, after hearing all this from multiple friends and family members of Janet's about her fraught relationship with John and how they were still in close contact, even though John lived in Baton Rouge, one of the first things Sergeant Flory did was request DFW police to check whether John had been ticketed on any flights into or out of that airport in recent days. The answer was no, but it was a very doable six-and-a-half-hour drive between the two towns, so that didn't mean that much. They ran a background check on John and reached out to the Sheriff's Department in Spring Hill, Louisiana, asking them to quietly look into whether John was accounted for on the night of April 23rd to 24th. The chief of the Spring Hill, Louisiana Police Department called and reported that he finally sat down with John on May 22nd. When he informed John of the purpose of the interview, he could tell from John's reaction that the news of Janet's death was revelatory and shocking to John. From Sergeant Flory's report, quote, he broke down and started crying and claimed he knew nothing of the murder until that point. Louisiana investigators believed him, and John was back Bernard. Then there was another long-term relationship Janet had had with a Larry H. Janet had dated him for a time back in Shreveport, even though he lived in Memphis. They met as he traveled through the airport. He told her he had been a bodyguard for Elvis Presley. But actually, he was married and had a woman in every port. Larry deceived Janet for two years about his marital status. He reportedly made threats to Janet that if she dated anyone else, he would take care of them. He claimed to be mafia and had connections who would take care of the problem. Larry was impossible for investigators to track down as he was a traveling salesman. He remained on the back burner list of possible suspects who were viable but not compelling because the two were no longer in touch and he didn't live in the area. Janet had also had a several months long intimate relationship with a colleague, Merle C., that had fizzled out prior to her death, but he was never formally interviewed in 1986. This even though he gave a eulogy at her Texas memorial service and even attended the more personal family service in Louisiana. He was newly divorced and not ready for commitment, as Janet was. Merle, too, remained on the list. Investigators discovered that Janet had recently taken active steps to try to meet more men. Janet, who admitted to confidants that she was lonely, had taken the plunge to join a dating service. This was called the Million Dollar Club, and while it didn't cost a million dollars to be a member, 
It did cost $1,250 for a one-year membership, which was a good chunk of change back then. Before the era of online dating like we have today, singles looking for matchmakers relied on clubs who would help them find compatible partners. Presumably, the high cost of this club would weed out the riffraff, and Janet felt she was more likely to meet quality candidates. The way it worked was each member would record a video about themselves and put it in the club's central library. Then they could view videos of dating candidates. If they wanted to proceed, they would check the yes box and the other person would view their video and give either the thumbs up or the thumbs down. If both agreed to pursue things, phone numbers were exchanged. Janet had signed up for the club on September 15, 1985. And let's just say that so far, the Million Dollar Club seemed more like the $39.99 Club. Janet hadn't taken it upon herself to view videos except for one guy, an industrial engineer named Larry S., not the same Larry she dated for two years. Larry S. had requested her after seeing her video. After reviewing his, she agreed to a date. Her club perfect match records indicated that Larry was the only entry on her profile sheet and she had responded yes. Larry was the opposite of Janet. He was on a tear, watching nearly 80 videos of female members and requesting dates with 11 of them, including Janet. So this doesn't look great for Love, Lauren, Larry, right? He and Janet connected at the end of February, and within two months she was murdered. Police had to consider him a possible suspect, of course, and he was questioned at the police station after being Mirandized. After they were done, investigators just didn't feel like he was their man. But they had another problem. The dating club's records indicated that Janet had only gone on a sanctioned date with one guy, Larry. But multiple of Janet's friends told investigators that they were sure Janet had gone out with at least one or two other million-dollar club candidates. The dating club's records had holes in them the size of the Grand Canyon and could not be relied on for accuracy and completeness at all. And it got even sketchier. Janet told her friends she received a phone call at her apartment from a guy she didn't know. He told her vaguely that he got her number from the Million Dollar Club. He asked her out. Janet declined and complained to the club, which was not supposed to hand out numbers unless both parties agreed. Janet's friends didn't know if anything more came of this, but it certainly was something that investigators wanted to look at. Janet also told her friend Terry about another club member she had dated. She said that one of the guys she went out with she initially liked, but she quickly tired of how he constantly talked about himself. She wanted to stop seeing him, but he was very persistent, calling her at home, sending her flowers, and coming by unexpectedly on several occasions. She said he wouldn't take the hint when she tried to cut him off. But Janet hadn't told Terry this guy's name, and police were never able to figure out who he was. But needless to say, all these random, unnamed paramours affiliated with the dating club made investigators uneasy and remained a loose end that never really got tied up. Now let's look at some guys Janet came across who were not people she associated with, but nevertheless were leads that required pursuing. Nancy and several other female employees reported that the security guard on the midnight shift at the employee parking lot was way too familiar with female employees, hugging them and sometimes trying to kiss them. He had reportedly called some of them at home, which meant that he had obtained their phone numbers from confidential personnel files. This was a guy named William B., he was employed by Stanley Smith Security. This directly from the police file, quote, Janet's friend Hope related an incident that occurred between herself and the security man. She had ridden the air trance out to the employee lot and then gotten in her car. 
While her car was warming up, the security officer pulled in behind her and blocked her into the parking space. He then tapped on her window to get her attention. When she lowered the window, he leaned in and kissed her. He had previously hugged her and asked her personal questions about whether she was married and whether she lived alone. End quote. This obnoxious and brazen security guy, William B., was a Bedford resident. He came into the Bedford police station at their request for an interview. He said he was on duty on the night of the murder and claimed not to remember or know Janet when showed her photo. Police were able to verify through employment records that William was on duty from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. the night of the murder. Pretty much a solid alibi, since that was an exact window in which they knew Janet had been slain. This guy was a creep who used his position of authority to cop feels off the women he was supposed to be protecting, but he didn't kill Janet. Police were intrigued by another lead they learned about from several of Janet's friends that, from a timing perspective, appeared very interesting. Janet had told her assistant Lilia and some other women that on the morning of the 23rd, her last day alive, she was playing with Fritz in the apartment complex parking lot when a man in a pickup truck pulled up to her. He was very friendly and attentive and admired her dog, saying he also had a schnauzer. Janet had told several of her friends that she was flattered that the man was so attentive to her, but she didn't mention a name. Of course, this could have been completely innocent, a friendly neighbor cooing over a cute puppy. Or it could have been someone malevolent, someone stalking her, someone who struck that very night. Police had no luck figuring out who this guy was until years and years later. Then there was another incident in which Janet herself had actually called the police. Records showed that in the fall of 1985, Janet had been out waxing her car in the parking lot outside her apartment. She noticed a guy loitering around watching her. He was right near the stairwell to her apartment. He watched her for so long that she finally hurried inside and locked the door. She waited for a while, and when she opened the door again, the guy was standing on the stairs outside her apartment. Janet called the police. When an officer responded, Janet reported that a scummy guy was staring at her. The female officer spoke to the man who was still there. He told her he was waiting for a friend to return home so he could borrow a bike. Janet was very shaken up by this creep staring at her right outside her house, and she described the incident in detail to several friends and colleagues. One of these, a male co-worker named Patrick, said he walked with Janet to her car in the employee lot that night and suggested that she buy a gun for self-protection. Janet responded that she was petrified of guns, making the manner of her death all the more tragic. Needless to say, the Bedford police quickly dug up this incident report. It revealed that the name of the man the officer spoke to outside Janet's apartment was Adino M. Officer L. Howard had spoken to him on September 6, 1985 at 11.30 a.m. outside Janet's apartment, and he said he worked for American Airlines. It seems likely that his story about the bike was a lie because old Dino had a record. He had been contacted by patrol officer, sorry, he had been contacted by patrol officers at least twice in 1985 for prowling around various residential areas in Bedford. Part of his criminal history is redacted, so I can't see it, but he had several arrests. And when he was creeping on Janet, Dino resided at the Arbors of Bedford Apartments on Bedford Road the same complex for which Janet had the rental pamphlet found in her apartment. So Bedford police wanted to talk to Dino. They learned that he and his female partner had moved out in August of 1985, leaving no forwarding address. It turned out they had moved to Nashville at some point, 
and Dino was on probation there for drug charges. On the morning of April 24th, the day Janet was found, Dino had called his Nashville parole officer to check in after receiving a letter from the PO at his Nashville address. Investigators got comfortable that Dino was actually in Nashville when Janet was killed, and he was crossed off the list. Sergeant Bowen told me that there was an overwhelming number of shady characters residing in Janet's large apartment complex at the time of her murder. Police had their hands very full, overflowing, in trying to talk to every one of them. They canvassed every apartment in the Park Village complex, which was no small task given the sheer volume of apartments. Police made a concerted effort to speak to every resident, at times returning again and again to a particular unit until they were able to make contact with someone. There's a list in the police file of each apartment number and the resident's name and a checkmark indicating they were talked to. They ran background checks on neighbors who were of interest, and sometimes the follow-up was completed only years later. For example, there was a guy who lived with his mom in the building next to Janet who had missed work on the days surrounding the murder and admitted to police that he'd seen Janet on a number of occasions. This was James M., He didn't really have an alibi, but remember that name. It will come up again later. There was also a neighbor guy who had an outstanding warrant for aggravated sexual assault of a child. After Janet was killed, officers served a felony warrant on him at his job site in Fort Worth. He immediately acted suspicious, volunteering, quote, I didn't murder that girl. I didn't know nothing about it. Then there was Park Village Apartments resident Randall Justin Gallagher, He was out on bail when Janet was killed, but ended up receiving a 75-year sentence for attempted capital murder, this for a 1991 pistol whipping of a female victim outside a nightclub. He also was a suspect in a Bedford murder that same night. Then there was a guy who was technically not a neighbor because he lived in a different complex down the street, but police learned that one week after Janet was slain, he'd been arrested for an alleged middle-of-the-night attempted burglary into a nearby apartment. And this guy had access to a 22 caliber revolver owned by his girlfriend. This directly from the police report, quote, When asked for reasons that someone would break in homes, this suspect advised to either, quote, steal something or, quote, kill someone. It was noted that he was extremely nervous during the interview. He asked for his attorney and the interview ended. So this guy put himself squarely on the suspect list until Max Courtney examined his 22 to see if any trace residue indicated it had recently been fired, and it had not. Okay, so that gives listeners a flavor for the type of people living in Janet's complex or nearby, and explains how police had their work cut out for them following up on all the neighbor angles. But there were also plenty of other suspects, as we shall see. Another avenue investigators went down was looking at reports of similar crimes in the area that could lead them to Janet's killer. And they found one that also took place in 1986. This was an unsolved sexual assault that happened on Central Drive, just a half mile from Janet's place. The female victim was approached from behind while climbing the stairs to her apartment. The bearded white male suspect forced her inside with a knife. He made her walk to her bedroom and remove her clothing, and then he sexually assaulted her. Of course, the weapon wasn't the same, but this was almost exactly what police believed had happened to Janet. This case remained unsolved, so it didn't really help investigators make any headway in Janet's investigation. However, Bedford investigator Bill Pond, who became the lead investigator on Janet's case years later, believed that this bearded suspect was the same as a guy who had actually been arrested in two other cases, 
This was a John Travis Lewis III. He went to prison for the 1993 sexual assault of a woman in Bedford. He had knocked on the front door of a woman's apartment located on Central Drive and introduced himself as a maintenance man for the complex, which he was not. The female victim allowed him inside the apartment, and he assaulted her at knife point. He was also connected to a second case that year where he climbed into an unlocked window of an apartment at 216 Bedford Road. There, he sexually assaulted a female resident. In both cases, Lewis forced the women to disrobe, just as Janet's killer was believed to have done. Again, the weapon was different, but the M.O. was not far off. Lewis remained on the list of suspects. So Bedford authorities were reaching out to other area law enforcement agencies to see if any similar offenses might provide clues to their offender. It turned out there were a multitude of other murders of women in the area that summer, and some of them had eerie parallels to Janet's. On May 14th, the Bedford PD got word that another female Delta Airlines employee had been murdered in her home in Arlington, Texas. The victim's name was Dolly White, and although she worked in a different Delta outpost than Janet, it was still a freaky occurrence. Dolly's husband, Anthony Twain White, was the prime suspect in her beating death. This intrigued investigators because they received a report that Tony had worked as an air traffic controller at the Shreveport Regional Airport, during the same time period that Janet had been stationed there. In fact, their day-to-day jobs, with Janet always stationed at the gate closest to the control tower, would have placed them in daily contact. In other words, police believed Janet was acquainted with a guy who was a suspect in the murder of another female Delta employee. Tony also had an arrest record for rape and was suspected in several murders in Shreveport. He was arrested and charged in his wife's murder. He had beaten her to death with a hammer, and then, get this, he staged the scene to make it look like a random sex crime. He stripped his wife's body of all its clothing and inserted the hammer handle into Dolly's vagina. He told police he was tied up and hit over the head by an unknown assailant. A search warrant of his home turned up something even more interesting, a twenty-two caliber pistol. Tony ended up being convicted in Dolly's slaying. But it turned out he had worked at the Shreveport Regional Airport in the tower from January of 1983 to May 1985. He didn't actually overlap with Janet at all, as she wasn't stationed there during that time period. There was zero indication they knew each other after all. And a test bullet fired from Tony White's 22 was compared, and it wasn't a match. He was crossed off. The whole thing was just a sad coincidence. Another crime was a few years old but was theorized to possibly be connected to Janet's. On February 13, 1981, a 31-year-old white female flight attendant for Braniff Airlines out of DFW was murdered in her apartment in Grapevine, about 10 minutes away from Janet. Her name was Beverly Bruneau. She was strangled and her body found in the living room in the same position as Janet. And, as in Janet's case, there was no forced entry to her apartment, nor was there a robbery. Beverly led a low-risk lifestyle and was well-liked by everyone. The odd thing was that the autopsy detected no signs of sexual assault. Police worked to see if there was any possible link between Janet's and Beverly's cases, but were unable to do so. By the way, Beverly's case remains unsolved. So, as listeners can hear, there was a burst of frantic investigative activity in this case at the outset, and they worked it hard. But... Sergeant Bowen tells me now that the case went dormant quicker than it would have today. 
It appeared eminently solvable at first blush, but that turned out not to be the case. After hitting brick wall after brick wall, rookie investigator Rhonda Moore took the brunt of the criticism for the case remaining unsolved, even though, of course, this was not due to any shortcoming of hers. She ended up leaving the Bedford Police Department soon afterwards, and Janet's case stalled. This is the end of Part 1 of The Case of Janet Love. Part 2 is available for you to download right now.